This episode is brought to you by LMNT. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water, it's about water plus electrolytes. It makes sense, you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. Both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches and energy dips. But most people only replace the water. Why? Well, because since the 1940s we've been told to drink 8 glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. Drinking beyond thirst is a bad idea. It dilutes blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion, or even worse. This low sodium situation, called hyponatremia, is very common amongst endurance athletes, shift workers, and those who work outside in the heat, leading to thermal stress. The solution isn't to stop drinking water, it's to drink water plus electrolytes. This is where LMNT comes in. Just mix this flavour, electrolyte drink mix, into your water bottle and you're good to go. It's got no sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes. LMNT has your electrolyte needs covered. Former research biochemist Rob Wolf and Keto Gains founder Tyler Cartwright and Louis Villasener formulate LMNT to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium and magnesium for health, performance and energy. They also formulate LMNT to please your palate. Many different flavours such as orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt and many many more. Just head over to LMNT to find out. Or better still, go down to the show notes, click on the link, the sleep for performance link, to get um, to click on this and get your free promotional pack where you can get a taster pack and no questions asked refund policy as well. You don't even need to send it back. So check it out at LMNT in the show notes. Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today we are talking about everybody's favorite drink and it's non-alcohol. It's caffeine. And today I'm joined by Carissa Gardner. But Carissa, you go by a very unusual nickname as you just told me for the podcast. So what are we going to call you today? Uh, we're going to call me Riss today. Riss. That sounds like you're some sort of scientific gangster. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. The scientific gangster known as Riss. That might be the title of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go around beating up people at university for their lunch money? No, definitely not. Definitely, Definitely not. not. Okay, that's good. All right. <laughs> Chris, we're going to focus on your paper today, which I came across, I think, on Twitter or maybe LinkedIn. I'm not really sure, but so I saw it being retweeted or reshared a few times. And I thought, oh, this is interesting because lots of people talk about it and lots of people are interested in the impact or the effect of caffeine. And you wrote this great uh, systematic review and meta-analysis, which is the top of the waza for research. This is the premier. This is like the, the gold-plated standard. Um, of research papers, a systematic review and a meta-analysis. And you looked on the effect of caffeine on subsequent sleep. Did I get that right? You got that right. Yes. Well done. Perfect. Before we jump into that, Chris, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you live? What are you doing for work? And uh, what's happening? Yeah. So uh, I live in Brisbane, uh, so sunny Queensland, um, and I'm a PhD student. So I don't do too much other than uh, PhD work, really. (laughs) Yeah. And um, have you always been in this area of um, of sleep or did you come more from a physiology background, exercise physiology? What, what was your interest in this? How did you get into it? Yeah, so I did a um, my undergrad in and honours in exercise science. Um, and while I actually did my undergrad, I worked in a sleep lab. Um, and at the time, uh, I never dreamt that I'd go on to do anything with sleep or sleep-related research. Never dreamt. (laughs) Yes. Well done. Well done. Good pun. Well played. Practice that all day. Um, And then uh, my honours was a bit more um, biomechanics focused. 
Uh, and then the opportunity came up um, to do a PhD that had a sleep focus. And yeah, I haven't looked back from there. So it, it's great. Excellent. What surprised you so far about doing sleep research compared to like exercise science or biomechanics? What's been of most interest to you? Oh, I just wanted. Oh, I just wanted to be such an interesting, interesting space. Um, so I'm not too sure about surprise per se, um, but I just think we've got a lot to learn about it. So I find it intriguing. Yeah, it's still quite new, isn't it? Despite like you know, people sleeping for thousands and thousands of years and the medical industry so focused on different areas we we are still kind of i would say infantile in our approach to sleep science sleep medicine still definitely um yeah. so obviously i've only been sort of looking at the area for a year or two so i'm definitely definitely still catching up with what we know and we've still got a lot to learn well i think you've done a you've, you're off to a great start here because for anybody who's not familiar with the scientific research methods and the papers that come out when you publish a paper to do a systematic review and meta-analysis is like the best possible paper you can do because basically you're aggregating all the research that's out there but you're not just aggregating it and kind of discussing it in a narrative type format you're systematically going through all the databases plus you're taking all the data from those and you're analyzing that data together as a collective which really gives us a really good position of where we are in terms of our knowledge on caffeine and sleep yeah, yeah, it's been a, a bit of a journey. Um, I was just lucky enough to have a great team of co-authors to to teach me along the way. But yeah, definitely been um, a few late nights and plenty of coffees going into that one. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, you've got some good people on there as well. Like uh, I know Louise and, and Greg and Charlie and, and Shona, as we said before the podcast. So lots of experience there with exercise physiology, shift work, caffeine and sleep and nutrition. So you've definitely got some uh, big hitters there in that paper. So with that, let's um, let's get into this because uh, I'm really interested. There's lots of good info in here. So um, let's start off with why did you want to look at this subject? What was the rationale behind looking at caffeine and sleep? Um, well, it's just such a relevant topic, right? Um, so I love caffeine. Um, and we sort of had a bit of a chat um, when I first started my PhD. And it just so happened that I had a coffee in my hand um, at the time. <laughs> And it kind of was a little bit of a, a bit, bit of a chat. And then when we had a, a dive through the literature, we realized that, yeah, we know there's an effect, but there's still quite a lot to learn on it. So it kind of just took off from there. Okay. So that was really, yeah, the the um the background. Yeah. So um obviously when you do a systematic review, you have to set up these kind of keywords and and methods and and sort of a structure to search. So can you describe to us or give us an overview of, of what you were really looking for in that systematic review? What was the key yeah. components of it? Yeah, the key components, so um, obviously caffeine um, and some of the other names that it can go by. Um, and then we had also um, sleep and a few variants of that. So sleep, um, uh, what else did we have in there? Um, quality, things like that. Um, so it was quite broad in terms of just trying to see what we could find um, on just caffeine and sleep-related research. And did the any of the papers have to have an intervention or could it be observational or descriptive in nature to make that cut? No, it had to be an, uh, an intervention. Um, had so to be they an had, intervention. Yeah, had to administer a, a measured caffeine dose. Ah, so it had to be highly controlled. Yes. Okay. So basically you were potentially like putting people into a laboratory, putting them on a condition of three hours of sleep, but then you were giving them maybe a caffeine pill or a shot of espresso in the morning to see what the impact would be on their performance from that. Yeah, yeah. So they they had to be um uh like a normal sleep duration, so not sleep restriction or sleep deprivation. 
Um, and yeah, they had to use a, a measured measured dose. Um, so they did that mainly in the lab. Some of them were were at home. So you know, so, so, so just out of interest, um, why didn't you go more broadly and look at all of the caffeine research that might have been questionnaire, actigraphy, field based, or PSG, or kind of side analysis? Why, why kind of restricted just to those intervention based ones? Yeah, so we were really interested in the dose and the timing relationship. Mm. So there's been a prior systematic review that sort of encompassed everything back in, in 2017. So we wanted to build off that. Yeah, that's interesting because when you do, I know from my experience doing caffeine research, trying to quantify the caffeine consumed is very difficult. And then you get into rates of metabolism and body weight and gender and age and fast metabolizers and slow metabolizers. And then how did they take it? Did it take chocolate? Did it take pre-workout? Did it take coffee? You know, it just gets really, really messy trying to figure out what went on and then trying to control it is extremely difficult. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, we stuck with with ones that we could um see what they'd actually been administered. So there'll be a few geeks listening to this podcast. Um, and I mean geeks in a positive term to be looking through this paper because this is um obviously free and open access through the through this journal, um, Sleep Medicine Reviews, which is a quite good journal. And in the database and search strategy, you've got some kind of cool words in here that people might be looking at. Pico which I found very interesting because there's a thing called a Pico prep that people actually drink before they have a, um, um, what do you call those uh, things? Now the name escapes me. What's the one where they put a camera on your throat at the end, endoscope, and then one goes up your backside? What's that called? Oh, not the colonoscopy. I'm colonoscopy, sure. that's the word I couldn't think of, colonoscopy. Before you have a colonoscopy, <laughs> you have to take a thing called a Pico prep. So when I read that, I thought, this is quite funny. So um, hopefully we're not clearing people out. Um, so PICO is standing for Population Intervention Comparison and Outcome. So this is um, this is obviously a framework that's used to to analyze or categorize the information that comes out. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you also have this cool word here called a, a Boolean operator. What's a Boolean operator? It's so simple. It's like and or all. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's why. I, that's 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 why I wanted you to explain it because I thought if she goes off on some convoluted <laughs> definition of this, <laughs> yeah. Google. You must um, be uh, yeah. you mu- you must be into all the kind of cool or and programming and Python programming, yeah, because they all love <laughs> to say boolean. It's and or. <laughs> definitely not. I took a course at the library. <laughs> I looked up a cool word. Um, okay. <laughs> All right, so you got all these different ones in here. So yeah, it's cool that you've um, control for those those dose responses of the of the caffeine, which is quite interesting. So uh, you went through all these databases, such as Medline, Sports Discus, Web of Science, and so on. And um, how many papers did you find so far that kind of met your criteria? Yeah, so we had uh, twenty four in altogether. Twenty four. That, yeah. that that's. Okay. Now you weren't just searching the last five years or the last 10 years, or how did you, did you put any no, limitations there? No. So um, it was just from the inception of the database. Wow. 24 papers looking at dose response and caffeine. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did, su- did that surprise you, Riz? Uh, it did a little bit, actually. Um, once I started digging, especially because when you just go caffeine and sleep, you get so many results. And when you actually start to look at controlled studies, yeah, they're, they're just not, not there. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of I would say guff out there, isn't there? With like self-reported caffeine on performance and um, questionnaires and things like that as well, and even actigraphy. Um, to to bag my own research before, it's just kind of looking at you know 
basically getting people to spit in tubes, getting the assays from those, looking at the caffeine, and then trying to do associations or correlations with like things like sleep duration and sleep quality and so on. So they're not they're not very well controlled, really. Yeah, that's that's the hard part, right? Um, so there were a couple um, in the that were included that used um, activity monitoring, yep. but most of them were, were PSG. Um, but yeah, it's just tough. Yeah, that's, that's quite surprising in the 24. And that was my next question, actually. Out of the 24, how many used polysomography to gold standard and how many were actigraphy? Majority of them were PSG. Uh, like a couple were um, in-home PSG. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, there were a few that used activity monitoring. And what what if people were saying, if we're looking at the difference between PSG and actigraphy monitoring or diaries, what's the how would you articulate the difference between those three different um, sort of methodologies? So PSG, actigraphy and, and diaries. Yeah, so obviously, as you said before, PSG is the gold standard. Um, so usually done in a lab, um, and we're able to to sort of look at the sleep staging as well there. Um, and then you've got your activity monitors that use um, activity thresholds to categorize sleep and wake, and then the diaries that are just subjective reporting on on how they think they slept. Yeah, and and there was no study that just had diary, was there? They all had at least. PSG or actigraphy, is that correct? No. So there was, uh, what, what did we have there? Um, I think there was two that used sleep diary only. Um, oh, okay. And they were, weren't included in the actual meta-analysis. Um, oh, the, wasn't the objective. They weren't, no, no, they weren't included. Just, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the ones that were included did have either PSG or actigraphy? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So some objective measure. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um. So obviously then you go through and you categorize those into like an assessment of reporting quality, which you've done here and um, in table three. So can you talk us through a little bit at table three in terms of the uh, categories? Yeah, yep. So we had um, the different categories there. So looking at um, whether the protocol was uh, randomized, um, the reporting of just the results. So we had a few issues there in terms of um, Two studies only reported short duration um, of what they actually recorded, so three and six hours, um, rather than the full night. Um, we also had a couple of issues there where uh, there wasn't a randomization. Um, it was just the control followed by the caffeine. Uh, so they're the ones there that are deemed to be of um, some concern. Um, okay, so yeah. can we just take a little step back and just explain this table maybe a little bit that we're sharing that people are watching the video? So D1 is the randomization yeah 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 um I think we'll yep. just work our way across here yeah sorry and then we've got um so period and carryover effect so was there a washout period between um the control condition and the caffeine condition yeah yep. um obviously if there wasn't then there can be concerned that um the, the first condition might affect the next night um we've got some deviations from the intended intended intervention um so did they do what they say they were going to do so can you give uh, us an example of that risk before we move on? So yeah. yeah, we actually didn't have um any issues with that, but essentially um if they said they were going to administer, you know, caffeine on this day and and it said in the in the protocol that they didn't um in the reporting. So okay. um we also had missing outcome data. Um so again, no issue there. Um yep. how did they actually measure the outcome? Um so again, we had no issue there. And then the selection of the reported result. So that was sort of the two where they only reported. Um, not all of the sleep uh, recording across the night. Okay, so it might be missing some information. 
Yeah, yeah. So we know that um, caffeine may have a, a bit more of an effect at the start of the night. So to only report the three hours and the six hours is a bit of an issue. You know what strikes me about this table and some of the search results? And again, we said there was only 24, which one surprised me, but a further <laughs> surprisation, my new word, surprisation is the fact that um, how early some of this research was done. This was quite innovative for its time, like 1974. Like the American Academy of Sleep Medicine wasn't even started by then. But some of the papers here are 74, um, 76, It's very interesting. It's really it's interesting. Like, like, yeah. Almost like there was a bit of a boom there. Um, late 70s early 80s um, yeah. and then it went away for a while and then it's come back um, late you know like 2019 through now so it's quite yeah, interesting yeah. yeah it is very interesting all right let's um, delve into this um, some of the objective sleep outcomes let's start with total sleep time or sleep duration how did caffeine affect people's sleep because this will be like the people have been hanging on listening to us talking go for 20 minutes like <laughs> right what actually happened to what actually happens to our sleep so what does happen to our sleep here? Yeah, so when we when we had a look at all the studies that we included um, with the consumption of caffeine, there was 45, uh, about 45 minutes less total sleep time compared to, uh, to when they had no caffeine, so the control condition. So caffeine reduces total sleep time or sleep duration by 45 minutes on average for most people. Yeah, yeah, yep, that's what we found. Wow. Yeah. Big effect, hey? That's massive. 45 minutes is, is massive. Yeah. And was that due to just a reduction in pure sleep duration or an increase in time awake, as in wake after sleep onset or an increase in sleep latency, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about later on, but just was well, it, well, it was both. Yeah. 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 So longer to fall asleep and, and more time awake across the night. And that's what's pr- predominantly reducing that sleep duration then. Obviously yeah. those two, those two parts. Yeah. That's okay. true. Yeah. And is there any impact in terms of or be able to work out what the quantity of caffeine was and then the timing near bedtime to give you that effect of 45 minutes? Or was that just like overall what you looked at? And then were you able to maybe segregate that further and go, well, like if you consumed within an hour before bed, you might actually be awake for two hours overnight. Yeah. So um, that was just the pooled effect. So across yeah. all the studies. Um, so what they found put all together. Um, and then we so, did have a look. So, sorry, I want to, I want to, because this is really interesting. I want to, because I'm just thinking with a practical application. So if I'm a normal coffee drinker and I've drank coffee at nine o'clock or eight o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning, in general, if I'm part of that study, I'm going to have 45 minutes sleep, less sleep compared to even just those. those no, 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 no. So um, it's just overall. So that encompasses the dose and the timing that they used in the study. So oh, okay. quite a lot of the studies that are included were in that sort of three hour time frame before bedtime so that's definitely going to play a role and that's what uh, we try to look at further great so, okay no worries yeah. sorry please proceed sorry no 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 i get, I get giddy and get excited and ask you <laughs> questions it's great yeah. Yeah. no it's a great question <laughs> um but yeah no that was just just the overall effect from the studies included okay so most of the caffeine was taken within three hours of time at sleep for most of the studies is that correct predominantly yeah yeah right. there were a few outside of that but that was quite common all right so uh, the next one was sleep onset latency so this is the time it takes to fall asleep and then for general in general for most people clinically most people would fall asleep between 10 and 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and we wouldn't really get worried about time to fall asleep unless it gets over about 30 minutes that's when we'd start kind of ringing some alarm bells about what's going on here so what did you find with this one uh 
So with this one, we found that uh, when they consumed caffeine, it took them not about nine minutes longer to fall asleep compared to to no caffeine. Nine minutes, okay. And again, um, this is a good conversation because this often often comes up in the electronic device literature as well. Is this clinically relevant or statistically relevant? Yes, great question. Um, so we had a bit of a look through the literature and we found that um, about 10 minutes was a clinically significant change. So from, from those findings, yeah, it's, it's quite a substantial increase in sleep onset latency. So on average, how long was it taking people to fall asleep after consuming caffeine? Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to go back and have a look, but it was, it was 9.1 minutes longer to fall asleep. Okay. I'm just having a look here. Um, sleep onset latency was 9.1 minutes longer in the caffeine condition compared to the control condition, which was somewhere between four and 14 minutes. Okay. So that was that going to be anywhere from like 11 to 25 roughly. Yeah. So not, not that bad overall, but still, still enough like to, to, Actually, is there a definition on what's clinically relevant? Because obviously it's statistically relevant. This is a great conversation. This, this, is, this is applicable to not just caffeine, like I said, but electronic devices or any other sort of stimulation. This is one, by the way, that many top sleep academics argue about. Uh, all right. <laughs> so tread carefully. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's throw our two cents in there. I'm trolling um, you to the sharks. <laughs> no, nah, I'm not sure of like a clinically significant um, like cutoff where it's like, 15 minutes of it. Um, mm. But I just had a look through and found a paper that was looking at improving sleep um, parameters in insomnia. And they said that 10 minutes was a, was a clinically significant improvement. So yeah. um, kind of went with that in my interpretation. But, yeah. I, no, I think, I think once you stay at it, it's fine. I think, yeah, I, yeah. I would say just, I was gonna I say, think, what would you say? Well, I would say actually just generally, <laughs> because it, again, this comes up like trying device stuff as well. And I think there's yeah. a little bit of um, little bit of poetic license gets taken when we get into the media with this as well. I would say if people are falling asleep under 30 minutes, regardless of the condition, it's not really that bad. But if they're looking for improvement, they should be trying to get down between 10 to 20 minutes. Because if it's really quick as well, are we indicating here like a a massive sleep debt, narcolepsy, other sleep problems where people are just like basically closing their eyes and just turning off, you know, like, you know, like the plug is getting pulled out of their head. So it's a balance of the both. So generally, obviously, between 10 to 20 minutes where people want to be aiming for. If it's over 30, I'll be ringing the alarm bells. Um, but again, it's just that kind of thing between clinically significant and statistically significant. I don't know if there's a landing point on this, but this would just be my general interpretation. I've had some conversations with um, Russell Foster on this from Oxford. He was here doing some work in Western Australia. And um, we did some work up in, in, a, in a mining town as well. And um, yeah, we had this conversation. I had this conversation in depth at World Sleep back in 2019. So um yeah, there'll be lots of different sides of this, but yeah. I, yeah. I don't think it really matters. People get up in a high horse, but I'm like, listen, if people are falling asleep within a reasonable time, isn't it all good? Yeah. I'd be I I'd be more actually worried about the sleep duration. That to me is a bigger thing to be to be looking at as yeah. opposed to time to fall asleep with this paper. Yeah. Yeah. Now the next one you have in here is REM onset latency. So before we talk about this, can you describe what REM onset latency is for people who may not know? Yeah. So um Broadly speaking, we have the two phases of sleep, so uh, non-REM and REM, so rapid eye movement and non-rapid eye movement. Um, so what we're talking about here is the time um, between, generally between sleep onset and the first period of rapid eye movement sleep um, is what we, yeah, REM onset latency refers to. Okay. So in general, 
Um, you know, most REM happens at the back end of the night, although REM does happen in the first half, but in general, predominantly, most of it's going to happen in the back end. So what did you find with this one? There was It seems to be there was no differences here with, with the impact of REM. Yeah, so there was no significant effect on, on REM onset latency, um, which we sort of concluded that um, because it's measured from sleep onset latency to the first onset of REM, then it's not actually affected by that extra time it takes to fall asleep. Yeah. Um, and so on average, um, do you remember from this paper how long it t- took people to fall asleep, to get to that first REM phase? Um, yeah, so the the difference between the two was about one and a half minutes between when they had caffeine and when they didn't have caffeine. Um, so not oh, really, so not really not much happened really. in there. No. Yeah, yeah. And then from if they fell asleep at 10 o'clock at night, let's say as an example, when do people generally have their first REM um, period? Yeah, so um, generally your cycle is about 90 minutes. So probably after around about that first hour or so. Did you look at those timings in this paper? No, we didn't. Okay, so you just looked at the differences between them. Yeah, yeah, just when it occurred and the difference between them. Yeah. Now, as a point, to... as a point of clarification, obviously you've got a lot of papers here that span a big time frame, like we said, nearly fifty years. Um, and obviously wearable devices weren't actigraphy devices that measure sleep stages weren't out back then. They've only been really popularized in the last probably five years, we'll say. But did you use any sort of wearable device to look at sleep stages in the study or was it PSG only for the sleep stages? Uh, there was one study that looked at sleep staging using um, like a portable PSG, um, so like a headband. Yep. Um, but other than that, no, they're all PSG in lab. So, yeah, so that's technically a PSG. What was that, like a level three or a level four device, like a home-based Ooh. one? Yeah, I really don't know in terms of the level. But yeah, it was it was done in their home environment. Yeah, so it's probably like a level three or four, but you didn't use any actigraphy-based um, REM things? No, not to look at sleep stages. Okay, no. because um, they're crap. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or to use a scientific word, they're shit. <laughs> Many of them are out, you know, by big variations from the, the periods of REM. So a lot of people place a lot of, um, I think, a lot of trust into their REM cycles that are coming out or the non-REM cycles or stages one and two out of actigraphy. And uh, it can be out drastically for some people. So, you know, and papers have shown that as well. So that's why I just wanted to clarify that. So wake after sleep onset, this is the amount of time that people wake up overnight. And it's probably important to remember with this, what we abbreviate to what's called WASO, wake after sleep onset. Many people may not be, may not remember this. So you might wake up multiple times throughout the night. So you could wake up 10 times for a minute each time and cumulatively that's 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people may not remember this and you have a lot of fragmentation. So um. But this was obviously one of the things that was reducing the sleep duration in this work. Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, so we found that when they uh, had caffeine, they had nearly 12 minutes more time awake after sleep onset. Hmm. And again, with the timing of that risk, was it more sort of like within the first few hours, later in the night? Do we know when this was maybe occurring? No, no. So we didn't look at that. We just looked at the overall duration. Okay. What do you think yourself? What do you, where do you think it may be happening from the pharmacokinetics of caffeine and how caffeine sort of gets metabolized in the system? Where do you think it may be occurring? Uh, just uh, to be honest, probably earlier on in the night mm. um, would be my guess, but that would be, be a guess. Probably a question I should have asked earlier on is how is the, caf- how is the caffeine getting um, given to people? Is it, was it all the studies tablets or like a caffeine pill 
was it yeah majority <laughs> no no no, no. majority <laughs> well they were all oral consumption but majority were capsules some were capsules. um like like a coffee based sort of where they oh, controlled okay. the amount of caffeine that oh, way right. but the g as well yeah so it was either oral it was either a tablet or caffeine type based drink there was nothing yep. else in like a other sort of where no yeah. no okay can can they inject caffeine? I think they can. I wouldn't like to try it, but I'm sure you would be able to. If you find out anybody does that, can you let me know? I will. For personal <laughs> use only. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we take those variables, sleep onset, uh, sorry, sleep latency, um, sleep duration, was on, so on. And then we come up with this metric, sleep efficiency, which is obviously derived from those. So um, sleep efficiency often gets interchangeably used as sleep quality, which I disagree with. It's not really sleep quality. It's more like the utilization of the bed for sleep, I would say, but it's not actually a measure of quality. Um, what was the impact on this one? Yeah, so we it found really that pretty... it was reduced, sleep efficiency was reduced by 7% um, when caffeine was consumed. That's a big jump, 7%. It is, it is. Yeah. And again, this is derived from, you know, this is this is all kind of lining up to match as well. Because if sleep latency is increasing, if WASO is increasing, if sleep duration is decreasing, you should then see basically a jump in sleep efficiency. If you didn't, you'd have to go back and look at your measures and think something <laughs> was wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The story works well. That's right. It does work well. So yeah, <laughs> got to get that story in order. <laughs> Now, the other one you looked at here is sleep architecture. Can you describe what sleep architecture is for people who don't understand? I haven't heard of sleep architecture or may not understand what it is. Yeah. So um, as we touched on earlier, we've got those two phases of sleep. So um, we can break down non-rapid eye movement sleep um, a little bit more. So there's stage one, stage two, stage three. Um, and we generally um, start stage one as lighter sleep and we end up in stage three, which is the deeper stage of sleep. Um, so once we go through that, we usually go into, into a period of REM and then the cycle starts again. And what did you find here with the impact of caffeine on those, um, stages? Yeah. Yep. So we found that caffeine increased, um, non-REM stage one, uh, so light sleep essentially, yeah. um, and it decreased non-REM stage three. So deeper sleep. Really? Yeah. Yep. Wow. This is interesting. So, um, any, any differences between genders? Or, or I didn't didn't look, to be honest. It'd be very interesting to look at this um, further um, between male and female and even by age, because one of the biggest things um, for people around my age um, is low testosterone. You can okay. laugh all you want, Riz. I understand <laughs> I'm in my mid-40s. You will be here soon. Don't worry. It creeps up in you like that. It comes out of nowhere. So don't laugh, my friend. Uh, it will happen to you. I only thought it was 1997 a few days ago and the Spice Girls were playing and my life was great. And all of a sudden, here I am in middle age. Yeah, okay. It'll that's, happen. That's a daunting prospect. It is, yeah. yeah. At least I got the Spice Girls. Spice Girls, you'll have Harry Styles to do with. Um, <laughs> we all have our cross to bear. Um, and so one thing that does happen for, for people as they get older, particularly men, is we get this uh, decrease in testosterone. And so there's a big push for people to get on like TRT and human growth hormone in their 40s, particularly for active people like myself who do, a, especially to some of the harder sports, like I do a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as I spoke with this podcast before, martial arts, do a lot of swimming. So um, it gets harder as you get older because young guys want to beat, beat your head in. Um, so a lot of guys start to get on the, on the juice, so to speak. But this could be one way 
we know that stage three sleep increases testosterone. So the first line that people could do straight away coming out of this is reduce your caffeine consumption to increase your stage three sleep to support an increase in testosterone. Sounds logical. Yeah. Sounds logical, isn't it? If caffeine, if, if caffeine is impacting stage three, then this is one way we could potentially increase our testosterone. Probably um, put a bit of a caveat on the fact that um, when we looked at sort of like the proportion, it was only, um, what was it? I think it was 1.4%. Um, so generally you have about 16 to 20% stage three. So whether that, again, we go back to that argument of whether it's a, a clinically significant difference or a statistically significant difference. Oh, I would argue for any man over 35 to every percent is going to help. Seriously. There we go. Yeah. 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 yeah I can tell you that from getting my head kicked in. Um, <laughs> so stage three goes down. And what about impact on REM? Nothing on REM? Nothing on REM. No. This is interesting, isn't it? I would have thought that the REM would have had, um, would have been impacted by, by caffeine because that stimulation or would have caused maybe something in this area. This is, this is very interesting. On your on your travels around the caffeine and sleep world, any did you see anything about the impact on dreams potentially from caffeine? Oh no, I haven't haven't come across anything. Um, yeah, there's not much that. out there. Yeah, and we don't do much dream stuff in the sleep science world. We are currently kicking off some research on that, but in general, we don't. It generally falls into philosophy or psychology. But anyway, that's yeah. a side note. All right, so stage one sleep increased. Yep. Stage two stayed the same. Um, yeah, there, it wasn't um, any significant change there. Significant. Um, stage three went down and REM yep. stayed the same. Yep. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Now, the next one is a whole new area to me. Um, quantitative electroencephalogram, EEG. So you looked at six studies here, report measures of EEG, EEG spectral power during non-REM. I don't really have, I know what it is, but I don't have any experience in this area. So this will be a good one just to talk about in terms of what, what what's the benefit of looking at this spectral power. Yeah, so um, the two types that we sort of looked at here um, that had been um, covered in the studies included were, um, so the sig sigma frequency. So um, that's looking, um, uh, what do we see there? We've seen a decrease in that and also the delta frequency. So they're like slow sort of brain waves that occur during deep sleep. Yeah. So obviously, um, again, fits with the story we've seen um that there was a, a decrease in the amount of slow wave activity um we didn't actually do this in the meta-analysis because there weren't enough studies so that's just a summary of what's just a little found. side note is it yeah kind of thing. yeah yeah little yeah. side okay. note but yeah. interesting um again fits with that story that um it has an effect on our deep sleep or the depth of our sleep so the spectral power okay yeah very interesting yeah i'm just reading through this now again yeah and then um the next one, which is, I presume this is a side note here as well as the subjective sleep outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. They were. So, so this is from the diaries and so on. Yeah. 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 What, what was the, what was the, the finding here or what was the kind of narrative here? Yeah. So uh, generally they supported the, the objective measures. Um, so people perceived a reduction in sleep time. Um, they felt like it took them longer to fall asleep um, and that they had worse sleep quality. But what I found super interesting was the fact that they didn't perceive any change in how much they woke up across the night, um, which we mm. touched on earlier, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, despite some studies showing objective changes. So I found that really, really interesting. 
yeah, I think people are horrendous at measuring their overnight like sleep. So they're, they're very good at saying like what time they went to bed and time to get up. Maybe we're falling asleep, talking about half an hour or so. But they fall asleep, let's say at 10 p.m. and they get up at six. They really don't know how, when, how much how much time they were awake. They're really yeah. bad at Yeah. So weren't a great deal that looked at it, but I found that to be, be a pretty interesting um, finding. I think people are really kind of, unless they're up and kind of like looking around, like the, like like with a noise or to become completely lucid, then they don't believe they've been awake. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, I quite enjoy people who sort of say, oh, you do caffeine and sleep, I can have coffee and sleep fine. And it sort of sits in the back of my head. I'm like, do you actually sleep fine? Or do you just perceive that you sleep fine? Yeah, so, or you 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 spend the same amount of time in bed. But do you yeah. have more more awakenings? You know, that you don't even have yeah. cognitive stuff exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. that's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. because they they can they fall asleep. But some people do actually have has no impact on them. Some people caffeine actually makes them sleepy. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, they say that. St- say, yeah, yeah. There is some stuff on that. Yeah, I haven't looked at it in depth, but some people it actually yeah. does the opposite on them. Um, yeah. So it actually makes them sleepy. I'm not one of those people. I can tell you that. <laughs> no. Um, you you also looked at um, caffeine cutoff times for avoiding reductions in total sleep time. So, and I'm going to actually pull up this graph because this will be interesting to, and I'm going to refer to, for those people listening, um, this would be, uh, it's got three parts in it, A, B, and C. And now I've lost where I was on the paper. It should be called figure three. Yes. Should be. Oh, yeah, right. So, this is a kind of a practical one again. Chris. So, you've got black tea, coffee, and pre workout supplement. Now, this is brilliant because loads of people, whether it be athletes, shift workers, and I'm talking to you men out there, you buff heads who think that pre workout just makes you get through a workout, pay attention to this one because this may be impacting your sleep. So for all you guys that go to the work after, go to the gym after work or go sparring and consume pre-workout like it's no tomorrow, when this, the side of the tub says to have one scoop and you say <laughs> one is good, two is great, and three is better, this is how much caffeine you may be consuming, which is approximately, if I'm looking at this, this could be 217.5 milligrams versus black tea at 47 milligrams. Like, well, five times the dose of black tea. And if you're having three scoops and you know you're doing it out there and you know who I'm talking to, <laughs> you could be having 15 times more caffeine that's in black tea or about seven or eight times more that's in a coffee. It's insane, hey? Um, that is so it, yeah. It's very, very interesting to, um, to actually have a look at, um, to, to sort of see that there in front of you. Um, yeah. So, so cut off time for people falling asleep in the evening for the black tea. Obviously, basically, people can have coffee, co- tea up until about 10 o'clock at night and it's not going to impact their sleep. I presume you're going to bed within an hour after that. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is um, just a, a dose that's been modeled off the average of black tea. So 47 milligrams, right? So that's just 47 milligrams, not three coffees in the morning and then a black tea before bed. Um, so just looking at right up until bedtime there at 10 p.m., yeah, um, you could have that that dose at 10 p.m. And what that's saying is there's no no significant effect there on total sleep time. 
And then for coffee, you're looking there about roughly one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this kind of ties in with the pharmacokinetics of caffeine, where it takes anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour to peak with people, four hours roughly of a half-life. So this generally kind of fits with that narrative that we know from most people with, ca- with caffeine. Yeah. Yeah. But then pre-workout, we're looking at half nine in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about 8.50 um, off the top of my head for a 10 p.m. bedtime. Um, so about 13 hours. So if I want to go from a practical standpoint of view, if I want to go to the gym at five o'clock after work, I need to have my pre-workout at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. To avoid a significant effect on your total your sleep time. But again, we come back to this is a statistical significant effect. Does that mean it's also a clinically significant effect? So again, but I, from- yeah, but I, I would argue here, this is probably more of an impact because, um, if you are going to have it at like say four o'clock before, oh, absolutely, yeah, it's yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. that you're going to push oh. out to one, two, three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'd expect this, it to be. This is fascinating. <laughs> this is fascinating because these guys, right, that are, and again, <laughs> you know, everybody sees the world through their own lens. And because I'm a middle aged man trying to be buff, um, I think I am anyway. Um, I know I'm middle aged, but people are doing this time and time again where they're going, I want to increase my testosterone. I want to get big. I'm getting older. I'm lifting more weights. I'm going to take pre-workout. But what's happening is they're lifting the weights, but they're fatiguing. They're not getting enough sleep. It's impacting their sleep. And then they're back to zero again the next day. So this might be causing what I call a negative downward spiral for them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is a great figure. I love this. This is really good. Was this your idea? Chris? Uh, no, I'd love to take credit for it, but no, it was not. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't take credit then. <laughs> but it's very good and very practical. It's a great graph. Um, it's very good. And I think it's a, it's a credit to the team that, you know, that put this together, whoever did put, come up with this idea, because it's really good. And it just shows those practical applications of caffeine, whether you're an athlete, a shift worker, you know, anybody in the general population, this is a really good guide. So if you're having trouble sleeping, this should be the first thing you should kind of use as a threshold. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty fair to say. Um, it's a it's a bit of a starting point. Like I think we still have a lot to learn in this space, um, but it's a it's a bit of an eye opener that hey, maybe it's it's well past that sort of you know four to six hours of a half life that people sort of think of when they think is caffeine going to have an effect on my sleep. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. All right, let's keep rolling through. Getting very geeky on today's podcast. Normally it's a bit more uh, a bit more fun, but this is really good. I really like this. Oh, you got the times in there as well. Yeah. 112 um for the tea. Oh, sorry, for the coffee, 8.50 in the morning for the pre-workout. So yeah. Yeah, and based 10, off a um 10 p.m. bedtime. Yeah, and 10 p.m. for the 10 p.m. bedtime. Yeah. So there you go. I'm doing the right things anyway, because I start I tried to stop all my coffee before midday. Generally, I'll have most of it like this morning. I had it all before eight o'clock. Yeah. And then just had a couple of black teas throughout the day. But some days in the afternoon around two, especially if I'm traveling across, you know, a few time zones, I'm a bit sluggish and I'll have another one. But I can definitely feel it. Yeah. Like, yeah, definitely. I did it last Friday. I had one, I think, at like two o'clock, just tried to get through the day. And then I fell asleep, no problem. At about 10 that night, I was really tired. Fell asleep, yeah. woke up 20 minutes later. Though, and then oh. I was like wide awake till two in the morning <laughs> on a Friday night. And I was like, oh... I don't need no. this. I don't I really don't need this after the week I've had. <laughs> Bet you enjoyed the coffee though. 
That was all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So all that being wrapped up and all of that um, research you've had, um, sorry, all that research I'd create together, what's the kind of practical significance? What's the message that you would give people from this paper? Is? Yeah, so I think it's, it's a pretty good eye-opener that, hey, um, caffeine is going to have a pretty substantial effect on your sleep, um, pretty much all the, the parameters we've looked at there. Um, so just being a little bit more aware of that. Um, and then I've, I'm kind of really intrigued by this cycle, similar to what you said before, um, of we feel a bit sluggish, so we have some more coffee, so then we have a bad sleep, so then we have some yeah. more coffee. And, you know, sort of investigating that a little bit more. So can we cut our caffeine back and sleep a bit better? And then not be stuck in this cycle. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of one thing that came out of it for me. Um, and then there's also the the sort of um, area we need to dive a bit deeper into is the habitual consumption. So does that lessen the effect over time? Who knows? Like I I really don't have a solid answer on that um, from what I've read so far. Okay, and so. Um... So practical recommendations for people coming along, obviously um, looking at this figure three that we had a look at oh. around the coffee consumption, the pre-workout, black tea, that'd be like the biggest takeaway from today for for Massively. For yeah. Absolutely. Um, pr- probably, um, you know, pre-workout in the afternoon, avoid if you can. Mm. Um, and then comes down to what you're trying to achieve too, doesn't it? You know, if you're, as you said, using it for performance, um, is, is the benefit, is the performance worth the effect it's going to have on your sleep? Um probably going to come down to the person um yeah and it's a trade-off as well isn't it like if you're a professional athlete and you don't have to go anywhere on let's say you're having a race or a, a game on on sunday evening and you don't have to get up and work on monday tuesday wednesday and you're not back training till wednesday afternoon can you make up the sleep and get yourself back into a good cycle potentially so then is the is the juice worth the squeeze like we'll say but if you're yeah. like a monday to friday general office worker and you're taking pre-workout at four o'clock or five o'clock on to the gym. Probably two coffees you've had in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're in some trouble. I think you are, yeah. <laughs> this is very interesting. So people end up having lots of lots of issues with sleep. Because this is what I'm finding is generally the middle-aged population is the ones that, like professionals, middle-aged, trying to like do a triathlon, lift weights, do something else. They've got lots of things going on. These are the ones that are struggling with sleep. And I think this caffeine and pre-workout um, issue may be a bigger factor than we than we know, because I don't I don't think people actually. I was speaking to a client this morning, and, and you know, lots of people don't do not realize that pre workout or chocolate contains caffeine. Pre workout surprises me um, that they don't realize it contains caffeine. Some people didn't even realize <laughs> that Red Bull and Mother and all those things would actually keep you awake. Yeah, just okay. talk, just gives you energy, <laughs> just energy. So what's the like just straight energy, and then you can just turn off. It's bizarre, isn't it? It'd be lovely. If, yeah, if that's but I think it works. just goes to it just goes to show. And I'm talking about people like you know that have you know a lot of education in this area. So, or you would think so. So we've still got a lot of a lot of work to do around messaging and promotion and the impact of caffeine. And it's not that caffeine is bad. It's about strategically taking it for Absolutely. optimization of your performance and to enable recovery. That's the key message I would say out of this paper. Definitely, definitely. Um, I think uh, the the effect that it has on sleep is very underappreciated yeah 
is very, very, very interesting. Um, so where to next, risk from this research? Do you, have you developed a bit of a passion from the caffeine and sleep stuff? Have you gone, wow, that's way too complicated, I don't want to look at it? Or has it kind of spurred you on to do more research in this area around caffeine and sleep? Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by it, to be honest. Um, so having a look at, you know, coming out of this paper, doing some studies that actually look at different dose and timing combinations. So from, from those that are out there already, they've either looked at um, different doses at a fixed time or um, a fixed dose at different times, but nobody's actually looked at um, a, a variety of those. So that's sort of, sort of where it's heading. Yeah. Very interesting. So um, we're going to put the full paper in the show notes. People can go in there and look at it. You can look at all these tables, all these figures. This was um, a bit of a geeky podcast today going through this paper, but I do like doing this when we have systematic reviews and meta-analysis. And again, this is the top level of research. As Riss has outlined here, she's aggregated all this information and data related to caffeine and sleep from back in the early 70s or since you know caffeine research was getting done. I don't think there was much getting done. What was the earliest paper? 74, was it? Yeah, it's somewhere around then. Somewhere like yeah. That. yeah. Yeah. Early 70s. Before I was born, may <laughs> I add? Finish on a win. In case, in case <laughs> you want to make a smart Irish remark or anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 78. I just am the end of the Xers. I didn't quite make the Y generation. Um. So, yeah. Okay. Very good. So um, what's next for you, Riz? What, what have you got planned? I know if you, even if you have some interest in caffeine, what studies have you got planned? Where are you sitting in your PhD? Um, yes. How are, you, how, how are you traveling with it? So I'm uh, two years into my PhD. Um, so have one year left and um, I'm currently um, running a study that's looking at different dose and timing combinations across the day. So watch this space. <laughs> Very good. Um, and what do you think you will do at the end of your PhD? What do you think you will... Uh, do you think you'll be an academic? Do you think you'll go off and fight crime? What What do you think will happen? Um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully stay an academic. <laughs> um, yeah, I've I've really enjoyed the research so far. So, um, hopefully, be able to stay around and do something like that. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, thanks very much for uh, coming on today to discuss this paper. Before you go, though, Riz, I'd like to invite you and other listeners to our Sleep for Performance Seminar, which is occurring on the 23rd, 21st of June, which will be the winter solstice here in Australia or the summer solstice if you're in the uh, Northern Hemisphere. Um, this is in its third year. If you like, you can go back and watch 2021 and 2022 seminar uh, where all those talks are there. It's free to attend um, and it's free to submit an abstract. And Riz, I think your paper would make a great abstract if you would like to put one in. This year, we're, gonna, we're welcoming people from all backgrounds, as you can see here. Um, and it's going to be on the 21st and we'll have session one, session two and session three. All our speakers will be in session one or session three. Session two will be our keynote speakers. And there will be a $500 prize for the best talk of session one and a $500 prize for the best speaker of session three. So there's money up for grabs here as well. And it's a chance to present out your research. The talks are all going to be five minutes with two minutes of Q&A. We suggest about five slides and then two minutes of Q&A. So um, yeah, we've been doing those for the last few years. You might want to check out some of the previous talks. You might recognize some names there. Um, but yeah, we'd like to invite you along to that. Thank you. And if any of our listeners would like to attend or you would like to submit an abstract, please feel free to do so. Until next time.
sleep well and consume your caffeine appropriately. <laughs>